0: Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide File. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for her. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 1973 unsolved homicide of Tina Davison. I'm Shaw McGregor. In the last episode, I traveled up to Fond du Lac, Wisconsin to investigate the 1973 murder of 9-year-old Lisa French. She was murdered by Gerald Turner, who is also known as the Halloween Killer. As hard as I could try, I couldn't find anything to really tie the two killings together besides the fact that they both happened in 1973 and they both happened in Wisconsin. Today's episode takes us even further north to Appleton, Wisconsin. Barrett Beck was a blonde 18-year-old who was very musically inclined. Not only did she sing, but she also played piano and violin. She had toured the country with the Continental Singers, a Christian musical group, during the summer of 1989, before taking a job at Oscar J. Bolt Company, an Appleton-based general manufacturer of farming and construction equipment in 1990. Beck worked in a trailer on a construction site, performing clerical work. She took the job after she graduated from J.I.K.'s high school before she attended college in which she was planning on majoring in music. She was supposed to be attending a four-day computer training seminar at Bolt's headquarters in Appleton, which is 100 miles north of Racine. She had reservations at the Holiday Inn. On July 17, 1990, she packed an overnight suitcase and drove to Appleton in her family's 1987 gray GMC conversion van Seminar was supposed to start at 1 p.m., but she never arrived. On July 19th, her van was found abandoned at a parking lot across from the mall. Witnesses told Fond du Lac police that the van was probably parked at the lot the night before. The van was locked, and the keys were missing, but Beck was nowhere to be found. The next day, more than 100 volunteers mobilized to distribute about a 1,000 posters with information about Beck. The teenager was blonde, about five foot ten, and weighed about 140 pounds. She was last seen wearing blue jeans and a red shirt. There was an empty McDonald's bag found in her van, indicating that Beck stopped at the Racine Fast Food restaurant for breakfast before embarking on her drive towards Appleton sometime around 9 a.m. on July 17th. Unfortunately, the search came to a tragic end when her body was found on August 22nd, 1990, in a ditch in Waupun, Wisconsin, 18 miles from where her van was discovered. The dump site is a half mile west of Wisconsin 26. Dental records had to be used to confirm her identity. Authorities determined she was strangled and suffocated. Her body was discovered in a ditch about 18 miles away from the Forest Mall in Fond du Lac, Near US 41. A receipt showed Beck stopped at Walgreens just minutes before she was abducted during broad daylight. It was also determined that her kidnapper drove an additional 462 miles on her van. So, who abducted and murdered Barrett Beck? In 1991, Greg Huron, who is currently serving a federal prison sentence for an armed bank robbery, was publicly identified as the prime suspect in Beck's death, according to a search warrant filed by Fond du Lac County Sheriff's Detective, Steed Hargrove. Huron had robbed a bank in West Bend just a few days before Beck's abduction. Hargrove and fellow Sheriff's Detective Bill Flood obtained a statement from Tim Amudson, who was an acquaintance of Huron. Amudson claimed that Huron admitted to killing Beck and even showed Amudson Beck's dead body inside of her van. By 1992, even though he had been the subject of widespread Wisconsin newspaper attention in the abduction and murder of Beck, the Fond du Lac County Sheriff's Office continued to hold off bringing charges against Huron, who remained in federal prison. In 2002, the Fond du Lac County Sheriff's Office continued its long-held belief that Huron was a killer during an interview with the Fond du Lac Newspaper. They alleged that Huron climbed into her van to steal a CB radio and radar detector. When Beck caught him, he freaked out and murdered her. Despite their claims, detectives still had no direct evidence to support their theory. Eventually, a new team of Fond du Lac County Sheriff's detectives determined Amudson was fed information about the case from the original detectives, and he made up stories in hopes of helping them arrest Huron. Sometime between 2004 and 2013, a number of vital murder scene clues were apparently thrown away or misplaced by unknown sheriff's employees. Among the missing clues were the red torn shirt that Beck had worn on the morning of her abduction and pantyhose that were used to tie her up in the back of her van. Her blue jeans, socks, and underwear that were covered from the dump side of her body also could not be located. The case continued to sit cold until February 27, 2014, when at least five previously unidentified fingerprints discovered finally found a match. Dennis Bratner was born in 1953, he was a five foot ten and two hundred pound long haul trucker, who originally grew up in Mendovi, Wisconsin, about twenty miles from Eau Claire. He also had a history of violence against women. In 1974, Bratner was questioned by police after a woman reported he stole underwear from her room in the West Alice Inn and left a note saying he would return the clothes if she would let him perform a sex act on her. In 1989, he was arrested for breaking into a home in Green Lake, across from his first wife's house, and for stalking her. In 1994, he was arrested for holding his second wife, Judy McLeod, hostage and threatening her with a knife in Kenosha, Wisconsin. During the trial for the murder of Beck, Judy testified against her ex-husband. She stated, he was already married when the two exchanged wedding vows the first time in the 1980s, and that she had no idea Bratner was still married to his first wife, Sue, so she dissolved her marriage to him in August of 1989. She remarried him twice after that because of, quote, an on-again-off-again relationship that lasted from 1988 to 1994, finally ending when he threatened her with a knife. On the stand, she spoke about how scared she was that night. She was closing down the bar where she worked and found Bratner crouched in the back of her car. He told her that he had a knife. When she tried to run, he chased her down. She said Bratner forced her to drive him to his car parked behind an abandoned gas station and asked her to give him all the money she had. She testified that she called the police and Bratner was arrested the following day. After being sentenced to three years in prison after pleading to a lesser charge, he was once again charged for stalking his estranged wife. Court documents portray him as an angry, vindictive man who received an dishonorable discharge from the military and who once warned his wife, quote, "...think of O.J., referring to the case of O.J. Simpson." Bratner was targeted as a suspect in Beck's murder in February of 2014 after a state crime lab analyst traced previous unidentified fingerprints from Beck's van to him. Additional fingerprints were submitted to the crime lab earlier in March, and an analyst found two additional matches in Beck's van, stemming from prints on a cellophane cigarette wrapper found under the front passenger seat and from prints on the inside middle door window. The complaint also describes statements provided by three of Bratner's former colleagues at the Kenosha office of Pneumatitech Incorporated, a maker of compressed air systems where Bratner had worked as a welder. The men said they saw a photo of Beck clipped inside Bratner's toolbox in his welding area. They said Bratner described her as his girlfriend. Another colleague said that in 2012, Brantner had told her he had done a lot of quote, messed up things, including committing burglary and rape and beating a woman so bad he would have killed her. According to the criminal complaint, Dennis Brantner's fingerprints were on the inside middle door window and a cigarette wrapper, among other places, in Barrett Beck's van. The complaint also says Brantner's former co workers remembered seeing a photo in his toolbox that they later recognized as Beck. Along with that, other photos of girls in their late teens. We've got a a couple bankers boxes of uh, information on this case and there's a lot of information to sort through and uh, we wanted to wait until we were satisfied. We had the admissible evidence to prove the allegations in court and that's where we feel we're at now. During interrogation, the complaint says Brantner became emotional and would cry when confronted with his fingerprints having been found. He also said, I don't know, numerous times when questioned about his role in Beck's death. I think it's important at this time To to realize that this investigation is far from over, we are going to continue. In 2016, the case against Bratner went to trial. But after 11 days of testimony, jurors cannot reach a verdict. And that resulted in a hung jury. The option was either to try him again or make a deal. Both sides agreed. Bratner would not say that he's guilty, but he would accept a sentence for a second degree reckless homicide. The deal was called an Alford plea, meaning Bratner agreed there's enough evidence for a conviction, but he would maintain his innocence. Dennis Bratner has, has been found guilty of second degree reckless homicide in the 1990 death of Barrett Beck. She was 18 years old at the time. Our Ben Jordan was in Fond du Lac County when Bratner accepted a plea deal this morning. Beck's parents say they are happy with the outcome today. This case was supposed to go back to trial, but the prosecution believes that would have been too big of a risk. Brantner entered the courtroom this morning to accept a plea deal for second-degree reckless homicide. Technically, he is not admitting guilt to the crime, rather taking an Alford plea since it's passed the statute of limitations. On March 1st, 2018, Dennis Bratner was sentenced to the maximum term of 10 years in prison. During sentencing, Fond du Lac County Judge Robert Wirtz told Bratner, the public needs to be protected from you. The sentence will run consecutively to time Bratner was currently serving on drug charges, meaning the murder sentence will begin after his current sentence ends. Because Bratner was sentenced for Barrett Beck's murder under old laws, he would be eligible for parole after only two and a half years into his 10 year sentence. If parole is denied, he will be up for mandatory release about four years later, making him about 75 years old when he's released from prison. Because the statute of limitations ran out on other possible charges in the case, prosecutors weren't able to add anything in addition to second-degree reckless homicide. Beck's mother spoke at the sentencing. Everyone in this courtroom, including Dennis Brantner, knows what a guilty coward he is. He did it. He knows he did it. It's time he stepped up and admitted it. So how does this fit into the timeline of Tina Davison's murder? According to a news article in 1974, there was a Dennis Bratner that worked at the Jupiter store on Main Street in downtown Racine. This store was in walking distance of the shoreline where Tina's body was found. Bratner would have been about 21 at the time of the murder. Couldn't find any addresses for Bratner before 1989. Or, sorry, in 1998. In 1998, he lived in Kenosha, and in 2000, he lived in Racine. An article from the Winona Daily News on October 3rd, 1973, shows Bratner charged with four felonies for theft of tools from a vehicle. It also states that he is from Mandovi, which is a small town near the border of Minnesota. If Dennis was in Racine in March of 1973, it could have been for work. There are plenty of long-haul truck drivers that have been serial killers, such as Keith Hunter Jesperson. From 1990 through 1995, at least eight women, mostly prostitutes from Oregon to Florida were found strangled. Jesperson had a long history of abuse, neglect, mental health issues, along with torturing animals as a child. By the time he was 17, he'd already attempted to kill two people. Tanya Bennett had been his first successful murder. Another victim, A hitchhiker who irritated Jesperson by nagging him to hurry up so she could get to Indiana and see her boyfriend while he was trying to sleep in the bunk of his semi was ultimately strapped to the bottom of his truck, face down, after she was raped and murdered. Her body dragged hundreds of miles to try to eliminate any identifying features. Jesperson was caught after he strangled his fiancée, Julianne winning him because he decided that she was only after him for his money. Because of her ties to him, he was quickly apprehended and confessed to over 150 murders before recanting and admitting to only 8. He's one of the most famous examples of long-haul serial killer truck drivers, but another one is Robert Ben Rhodes, also known as the Truck Stop Killer. He's believed to have tortured, raped, and killed more than 50 women between 1975 and 1990, from Illinois all the way down to Texas. At the time he was caught, in 1990, he claimed to have engaged in these activities for 15 years. He would pose her. He would make her dress up in a certain way make her undress completely. The back? Of the rig looked like a torture chamber. He had handcuffs that were somehow attached to the ceiling of the truck. You especially see the fear that's going on with this little girl. She knew it was the end. Rose preyed on hitchhikers and truck stop prostitutes. His first confirmed victims were Candace Walsh and her husband Douglas in January of 1990. The couple were hitchhiking when Rose picked them up in his truck on a long-haul journey. He immediately killed Douglas and dumped his body in Sutton County, Texas, where it was later found. Candace was kept for over a week. During this time, he tortured her and raped her multiple times before dumping her body in Millard County, Utah. A month after Candace's death, 14-year-old Regina K. Walters and her boyfriend, Ricky Lee Jones, both runaway teenagers from the Houston suburb in Texas, disappeared. Like with Douglas, it's believed that after being picked up by Rhodes, Jones was killed immediately. Photos seized during the search of Rhodes' home confirmed that he held Walters for a long time, based on the degree of hair growth and bruising. Jones' body was found on March third, 1991, in Lamar County, Mississippi, In the early morning of April 1st, 1990, Officer Mike Miller of the Arizona Highway Patrol found a truck on the side of I-10 with its hazard lights on. When he investigated inside the cab, he discovered a nude woman, handcuffed and screaming. After failing to talk his way out of the situation, Rose was arrested and charged with aggravated assault, sexual assault, and unlawful imprisonment. After further investigation, the arresting detective, Rick Barnhart, was able to make a connection to the Houston case and noticed a pattern stretching over the course of at least five months. In executing a search warrant for Rhodes' home, police found photos of a new teenager who was later identified as Walters, whose body was found in September of 1990. Also present were photos of Walsh, whose body was discovered that October. In 1994, Rose was convicted of the first-degree murder of Regina K. Walters and sentenced to life without parole at Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois. He was extradited to Utah in 2005 to be tried for the deaths of Candace and Douglas. However, in accordance with the victim's family's request, the charges were dropped in 2006 and was returned to prison. Rose later was extradited to Texas for the murder of Walter and Jones. In exchange for dropping the death penalty, he pleaded guilty to their deaths and received a second life sentence. Despite his other convictions in Texas, he continues serving his life without parole sentence at the Bernard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois. Much like Bratner, I don't think either of these two serial killers fits in very well with the Tina Davison case. Bratner has some ties close to Racine, but... No real proof of being there in 1973. In fact, it appears that he lived near Mendovi in 1973, according to his arrest record. Despite the internet's persistent interest in making Dennis Ratner a prime suspect in the case of Tina Davison, I just haven't found any evidence. He doesn't seem like the type of person who would be a manager at a local discount store in Racine. He was a welder and a truck driver. So it's hard to believe that the man in the article is him. And I wasn't able to find anyone else with that name that lived in Racine at that time though. Also, I wasn't able to verify that he lived in Racine in 1973 at all. The newspaper article that spoke of his arrest in 73 spoke of him as living in Mendovi. So it's confusing to think that he murdered Tina in Racine in March of 73, but then he moved back to Mendovi in 73 and was arrested in October, and then moved back to Racine in October of 74, where he became the manager of the store in downtown Racine. I mean, true, he could have fled back to his hometown in uh, fear of getting caught after the murder, but we have no way of actually knowing. I did find another Dennis Bratner that is 11 years older than the convicted killer. The only Uh, addresses in the past 20 years that I've been able to find of his, however, place him in Northern Illinois, you know, which is right on the border of Wisconsin. So it would make much more sense to have a 30 year old manager of a discount store as opposed to a 20 year old who had just been released from jail. I just don't see Dennis Bratner having any ties to Tina Davison and the other two serial killers I mentioned. I don't see them having any ties. I, I looked into Dennis Bratner and Gerald Turner to check them off the list. Every lead and every theory needs to be examined. In this case, just for if for nothing else, the sole reason of eliminating them as possible theories. So I feel that I've successfully eliminated two of the Internet's most popular suspects, but... Do we have any new persons of interest? As we wrap up the first season of Searching for Closure, um, I have to wonder, have we gotten any closer to finding answers than when we first began? In next week's episode, which is supposed to be the final episode of season one, I'm going to look back at everything, examine new information and new evidence that I have, and... Let you guys know where the podcast is going moving forward. If you knew Tina or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group, which can be found at www.facebook.com slash group slash closure. Every time I post a new episode... I'll also be posting a new blog entry with notes, pictures, videos, or news articles. You can find all that at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review on iTunes and make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you listen to this so you can get notified of new episodes. Uh, Tina's case has remained unsolved for 45 years and deserves closure. So spread the word about it, please.